I wonder what do you think about when you hear whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. For many of us, we've known that verse for years, for some of us as long as we can remember. Maybe it's perhaps one of the very first verses we learned as a Christian. And I wonder if what comes to your mind is what came to Paul's mind when he thought about that verse. Because what Paul thought about was how we use Christian liberty. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God has everything to do with this fourth church challenge we've been looking at together. If you've just joined us recently or need a quick reminder of what we're doing in 1 Corinthians, we're walking through 1 Corinthians section by section, roughly chapter by chapter, uh, with, a, with a theme of church challenges kind of underscoring the entire series. And we're looking at six different church challenges that Paul addresses in the church at Corinth, and which really show themselves at different times and in different ways in lots of different churches, including our own. We've looked at the challenge of division, the challenge of immorality, the challenge of marriage. And the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the challenge of Christian liberty, which Paul talks about in chapters 8 through 10. And so we're going to conclude that challenge this morning by looking at chapter 10. In chapter 8, Paul talked about Christian liberty, what it is, kind of explained it to us. And we looked at our need to have humble love for our brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to this issue, for doctrinal patience with each other, and for sensitive restraint. Last week, we took a, um, a look at an illustration that Paul himself gives of Christian liberty, which is himself. He offers himself as a model to be imitated regarding how we use Christian liberty. We looked at Paul's rights to be paid as an apostle and the reasons that he refused to exercise those rights. And so this morning, we're to come to the final application of Paul's exhortation, which began in chapter 8 and concludes here in chapter 10, about how he desires the Corinthians and us to rightly practice Christian liberty. So in order to rightly practice Christian liberty, we need three things. And those three things he's going to talk about in our text this morning. Here's the first thing we need. First of all, a realistic assessment of the use of Christian liberty. We need a realistic assessment of the youth use of Christian liberty. Now, what do I mean by a realistic assessment? Well, I just mean we need to be honest with ourselves. We need an honest and humble acknowledgement that we are prone to get it wrong in matters of Christian liberty. In other words, we can think that what we are doing is okay because we don't feel convicted by our conscience, but it may be our conscience isn't functioning properly. We may not feel convicted because we do not know what God's Word has to say on the matter, and so we're just acting in ignorance. Or we may not feel convicted because we do know what God's Word says on the matter, but we have refused to listen to our conscience, and as a result, it's become damaged. Or we may not feel convicted because we have searched out God's Word on the matter, and God's Word affirms what we are doing, and we've calibrated our conscience accordingly. All those can be reasons for that. So what does that have to do with our passage today? Well, in verses 1-13 through 13 of chapter 10, Paul brings up a second illustration to contrast with the, the illustration of himself that he used in chapter 9. That is the people of Israel. So in this passage, he shows how 
They were willing, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, were willing to engage in idolatry. And Paul uses them as a negative example of what he was describing of himself at the end of chapter 9. Whereas Paul took his race, his life, his ministry, seriously, as we read at the end of chapter 9, resolving to do everything he could to not put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister, refusing to exercise his rights of financial support, lest the use of that right might give reasons for people to object to him preaching the gospel to them. And this took great self-control on Paul's part and great self-discipline. And he was careful in all the ways that he tried to live his life so that he wouldn't be disqualified by disobeying what the Lord had called him to do. Now, he's going to say to the Corinthians, consider me as a positive example, but now consider the Israelites as a negative example. See, the honest and humble assessment that Paul had of his rights in chapter 9, he's going to say, you Corinthians are not behaving like that. You're behaving more like the Israelites did in the Old Testament. Which is the exact opposite of the way I'm behaving. So, Paul was not acting in presumption and arrogance that characterized the Israelites in the wilderness. Instead of exercising self-control and self-discipline and self-restraint like Paul, they gave themselves, in Paul's language at the end of chapter 9, to running aimlessly and boxing as one beating the air. They were living recklessly, behaving recklessly, living unprincipled lives based upon their sinful inclinations rather than being governed by what God's Word had to say and what love for people dictates. So in what ways did this manifest itself? Well, first, Paul tells us that despite being immensely and immeasurably blessed by God, the Israelites didn't run the race as God would have them run. Look at the first five verses of chapter 10. For I do not, I want, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that is the people of Israel, and all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock, uh, spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, that is the old covenant people of Israel, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul brings up Old Testament Israel post-Exodus, after they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and most of them were not running the race as God would have them run. They failed to run with self-discipline and self-restraint in the wilderness, and most of them, as a result, were disqualified. He reminds them that these things took place as examples for the Corinthians and for us. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Skip down to verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the implication is clear. Just like the Israelites, the Corinthians enjoyed the blessings of redemption and baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we too must vigilantly persevere in our race lest we be disqualified. Beginning in verse 7, Paul begins to lay out the specific sins that if they are continually practiced and lived in unrepentantly, 
will disqualify us from the race by revealing that we aren't truly part of God's people. What are those sins? Look at verse 7. The first one is idolatry. Do not be idolaters, Paul says, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Paul quotes Exodus 32 here. What was going on in Exodus 32? Do you remember the episode? It's the golden calf incident. One of the clearest and most striking examples of idolatry in the entire Old Testament. While Moses was up on the mountain of Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, Israel was at the base of the mountain breaking all ten. Sacrificing to a false calf god and engaging in a party. Paul's citation of this verse was likely owing to the fact that eating and drinking was part of the idolatrous festivities, clearly connecting the topic to meat sacrifice to idols that he's been addressing for the last three chapters. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The play of verse 7 possibly included the sexual immorality of verse 8. Paul has already warned them of the consequences of sexual immorality. We considered that in the second church challenge in chapters 5 and 6. And what was the consequence of this sin for the Israelites? Well, Paul tells them that the consequence of that immorality was that 23,000 fell, died, in a single day. Just a note, Numbers chapter 25 verse 9 records that those who died were 24,000. So is this proof that the Bible isn't inspired and that it contains errors? No, for at least two reasons. First, the numbers are approximate. They're not precise. They're not designed to be precise. But it's also possible that because Paul says 23,000 died in a single day, there may have been another thousand that died the second day. We're not told. A third sin, in addition to idolatry and sexual immorality, is putting Christ to the test, which Paul says in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So what test is that? Well, Don Carson describes testing the Lord as chronic and repeated unbelief with attitude. Chronic and repeated unbelief with attitude. Israel grew comfortable in their patterns of disobedience. They saw that living in sin... And getting to live a second day was evidence that God may have been turning a blind eye. The Bible calls this presumptive sinning. The Puritans called it sinning with a high hand. The Bible calls it putting Christ to the test. A fourth and final sin is grumbling. Look at verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The grumbling Paul is talking about is not a one-time complaint or some form of sadness or discouragement. Rather, it's a defiant refusal to trust God that's manifested by ongoing complaining and ingratitude. So it's in the face of these four sins, idolatry, immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling, that Paul says to the Corinthians, remember what happened to them. They were written as examples for us. Don't be unaware. And so he warns them in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, the Corinthians were cavalier about this whole issue of meat sacrifice to idols. They were indifferent about how the use of this Christian liberty was impacting the church and their witness in Corinth. They were unwilling to give up their rights for the greater purpose of reaching 
of reaching the lost and building up the church. And so Paul tells them, if you don't change, don't think you're saved. Think you're like the Israelites of the Old Testament who were cavalier in their approach to sin and didn't consider what God had to say on the matter. Just like the, the Israelites who lived idolatry, idolatry, idolatrously and thought they could please God, God overthrew them in the wilderness. And Corinthians, He will do the same to you. Be careful, Corinthians, when you take part in pagan feasts and your conscience doesn't bother you. Be careful when you engage in temple prostitution and think it's okay. God is okay with it. Be careful when you grumble about the difficulty of not being able to take part in Corinthian culture. Be careful when you put Christ to the test, when you're willing to participate in idolatry because it keeps you in good standing with the trade guilds and keeps the money coming into your pocket. Be careful that you think you stand when you exercise your rights to eat food sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple, lest you fall. Do not assume that you can't be disqualified from the race. Now that doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation, but it does mean you can prove you never had it. Do not assume that you do not need to vigilantly exercise self-control and self-discipline because you think the race is essentially over and you got baptized and took communion after all. Dear ones of HBC, we need to be careful as well that just because we've received baptism and we take communion, that we are safe from God's judgment for a life lived in unrepentant sin. If you're not running the race of faith, if you're not disciplining your body and keeping it under control, living your life in imitation of Paul and of Christ to build up the church and reach the lost, you need to guard against overconfidence and thinking that you're saved. You can't coast in spiritual things. Now, while that's a warning that Paul would give to us and to the church at Corinth, don't forget the amazing promise that God gives and Paul gives here as well. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see the gospel promise here? Paul doesn't want to just leave them in fear. He doesn't want to leave them. He does want to rebuke their pride and rebuke their arrogance and rebuke their overconfidence, but he doesn't want to leave them without hope. And he doesn't want them to conclude that they're not Christians yet. <laughs> he wants them to take his warning seriously and lean into the God who provides us escape from all forms of sin. All the temptations we face are common to all people. Temptations like idolatry and immorality and testing Christ and grumbling are not new temptations. There was a long time period between Israel and the church at Corinth. And there's been a long time period between the church at Corinth and the church of heritage. But we can, out, we can outlast all of our temptations because with God's help, God is faithful. God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able by grace to endure. And with the temptation, He will always provide a way of escape. So this caution, so we don't give in, we don't fall, we don't have to be disqualified. So this passage both cautions us and encourages us. We are warned to persevere lest we be disqualified. And we are reassured that God, God will not allow a uniquely powerful temptation 
to overwhelm any of his true children. I remind you of what we began, 1 Corinthians, with this promise. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is as true for you as God's child as for any of God's children. Verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Brother, sister, do not fear. Do not fear that God will keep you. Do not fear that you will not be sustained. Do not fear that you are left to yourself. But be reminded that He will sustain us firm to the end. And that He will always avail us of a way of escape. So when we are tempted, we should be looking for that. What is that way of escape that He has provided? So let's have this realistic assessment of ourselves that both reckons with the fearfulness that should accompany us regarding our sinfulness and the rest that the gospel gives us in light of God's faithfulness. So that's what I mean by a realistic assessment of our use of Christian liberty. Secondly, an absolute determination to not abuse Christian liberty. In addition to a realistic assessment, we need an absolute determination to not abuse Christian liberty. Paul now calls the Corinthians and us in verses 14 to 22, in light of all that he's just said about the warning and the encouragement to flee all known forms of idolatry. Let's read verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, talking about the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? To take the Lord's Supper, Paul says, as a Christian, is to participate in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense. In it, that is in practicing and taking the Lord's Supper, we strengthen our spiritual union with Christ, which union is possible because Jesus shares our human nature. The Lord's Supper is not simply a memorial meal, but a means of grace whereby we commune with Jesus in heaven. And since partaking of the Lord's Supper is to participate in Christ, Paul says, eating pagan worship meals in the temple also is to participate in a spiritual reality, albeit an evil one. So we can't love Jesus and participate in pagan worship rites. For us, that means we can't love Jesus and participate in interfaith worship services where different gods are being worshipped at the same time. It means we can't have one foot in Christ church and one foot in a Masonic lodge. It means we can't walk in pride parades or attend gay weddings or engage in pro-choice marches. For to do all that would be to be united in the events as to participate in the idolatry that they represent. So friend, if you're here and you don't 
follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what's being said by the Apostle Paul here? There are two tables that are pictured. There are two tables in the world from which everyone is eating. The table of Christ or the table of demons. You might think, oh, that's so primitive. I mean, this was written in the first century. I don't worship idols. But dear friend, idolatry is not something limited to wood, stone, and gold statues. It manifests itself in everyday life. An idol is someone or something that occupies the place of God in your life. It's what you're living for. It gives you identity and meaning and value and purpose and love and significance and security. For most people, it's themselves. But it's also other things. Food, sex, money, fame, power, glory, achievement. We call that America. I read a story of a pastor who had an occasion to visit India and spoke with one of the native women who at the time when he was speaking to her was offering chickens on an altar as a sacrifice. He said that while he was there, he asked this native woman, do you think you'll ever come to the United States and visit my country? To which the woman replied, I did once, I will never come again. But after questioning why, the woman answered, I cannot stomach the idolatry. And here is a woman offering a chicken on an altar. She went on to say, your God is your stomach and you have restaurants everywhere. Your God is your sports teams and you build multi-dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television and all the chairs in your home are lined up so that your family can gather around the altar to worship the gods that are displayed. See, there are two rival sacrificial systems in the world, that of Christ and that of devils. And behind every idol is a demonic influence. And devils are accusers and they demand sacrifice and it must be offered repeatedly and can never be satisfied. This is why people who are living for themselves and chasing the good life will run themselves ragged and still not find what they're looking for. As we sang this morning, you can work your fingers down to the bone and nothing you do could ever atone. Because this worldly system filled with devils will devour its worshipers. But Christ shed his blood for us and has satisfied all the requirements of God. The security and identity and glory for which we long is thus given to us by grace as a gift. We are free from the spirit of accusation and the nagging sense that we are and never will be enough. There are two tables, a table of condemnation and a table of no condemnation. And if you are eating right now, living for yourself, eating from the table of condemnation, and you feel it in your conscience, and you're running yourself ragged trying to develop a meaning and a purpose in life, I invite you back home to your Redeemer. There is a table offered to you that is no condemnation. No matter what you've done or who you've been, you can come back to this table and you can eat from this Christ. He will give you His righteousness. He will forgive and forget your sin. And when you come to Him, He will not destroy you. He will not destroy you like the idol that you are serving is right now. But the Christ, Christ will love you and serve you and care for you. Come to Him. Now it's at this point that I want to come back to the question I raised a few weeks ago regarding whether the Bible always forbids eating food sacrificed to idols. If you remember in chapter 8, 
it appears that Paul is stating that under some, some circumstances that would be appropriate. And yet here in chapter 10, it appears that Paul is stating that under no circumstances would it ever be appropriate. I don't have time to review all that I said in my sermon two weeks ago, but we did consider several texts on both sides of the issue. But I do want to tease out a few thoughts about that now. So let me give them to you. First, as we saw in the text that we read two weeks ago, there is a universal condemnation of knowingly eating food sacrificed to idols in the New Testament. We looked at several passages in the book of Revelation. We looked at what the apostles told the young Christians in the book of Acts. There are no exceptions to this in the Bible. This is not because the meat is possessed, but because the conscience ramifications that surround it for Christians and other people watching. The earth is the Lord's, including all the meat in it. But we must always consider others first. Second, the circumstances here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 are somewhat different than the matters addressed in Romans 14. Romans 14, Paul is writing the church at Rome, telling them how they should have conscience issues resolved regarding Jew-Gentile food laws. But in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, it has to do with food offered to idols, pagan sacrifices. So Romans 14 is a Jew-Gentile distinction, and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is a pagan-Christian distinction. They're different. Many of these verses that were cited, think for instance in the book of Acts, where the sheet is coming down and Peter looks up and he sees it, and it's filled with all these animals and and, it set, and the, the Spirit says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Well, that was regarding Jewish food laws. He was saying all food is clean now. You may eat it. It wasn't regarding pagan offerings and temples. So the circumstances are a little bit different. And many of the verses that are cited seemingly in favor of eating food sacrificed to idols is actually in reference to Jewish food laws. A third point, when Paul says in chapter 8, verse 9, this right of yours? I think Paul is saying that the Corinthians thought that they had a claim to this right to eat food sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple. Look back at 1 Corinthians 8 and verses nine, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? So what is this right of yours? Eating in an idol's temple. Eating food in the temple where an idol is worshipped. Now he says this right of yours, he doesn't say our right. I think that's interesting. Because I think Paul is trying to tell them that though they claim this right, it's not legitimate. Paul is referring to an illegitimate right that the Corinthians think they have, but don't actually possess. Some have said it's a legitimate right because Paul didn't call it a so-called right like he referred to a so-called God earlier in the chapter. And also the rights that Paul talks about for himself in chapter 9 are not so-called rights. They're real rights. But I think 1 Corinthians 10 through 14, 14 through 22 that we just read makes it pretty clear that this right that they thought they have, they don't have. Now, fourthly and most importantly are verses 25 through 30. And these are especially enlightening on what Paul is talking about. Context matters. 
And Paul is going to tell them that the context in which you eat this food, Corinthians, that has been sacrificed to idols, matters. Where you eat it matters. Not if you eat it, that could be disputed. Where you eat it matters. So let's look at verses 25 through 30 of chapter 10. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Notice he doesn't say what is, don't eat, he doesn't say eat in an idol's temple. He says, eat whatever sold in a meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, that is at his house, and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience, even if it's food offered to idols. As long as, look at verse 28. But if someone, that is an unbeliever or someone in the house, says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, this is meat offered to idols, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his, because their conscience was not bothering them. But his conscience would. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So what is Paul teaching here? Let me give a summary. This is his theology of meat sacrifice to idols in 1 Corinthians 8-10. through 10. And then we're going to talk about how all this relates to us because we're not going to a restaurant where I'm pretty sure Olive Garden and other places aren't sacrificing anything to the goat god today. So here's the three things I want to point out. First of all, believers must not participate in banquets held at pagan temples. Participating in the Lord's Supper excludes participating in banquets held in pagan temples where food and drink that is served has been dedicated to a demon, a pagan god. I think it's relatively clear that Paul bans the eating of idol food in the temple, and to do so would be to participate in demonic, idolatrous activity that harms both the individual, the Christian church, and the church's witness in the culture. But secondly, if they are unaware of the origin of any food outside of that, they're free to eat it. When Christians buy meat in the market, they do not have to ask whether the meat came from a local temple where it would have been offered to idols. They can buy and eat. Believers may eat meat bought in the market or offered at private dinners to which they have been invited as long as they do not know that the food was previously offered as a sacrifice in a pagan temple. When Christians are invited to dine in a private home, they can eat the meat on the menu. So you're not permitted to eat meat sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple, Corinthians, as part of a pagan ritual. And you should give up your right to do that. And you should also give up your right to eat such meat if a person informs you in their home that the meat was sacrificed to the idols. Again, not for your conscience sake, but for theirs. However, Christians are not required to search out whether the food has been sacrificed to idols. So yes, the Corinthians have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's bought in the meat market, served in the home of a neighbor or church member. You don't have to ask where it came from. But if believers are informed that the food is sacrificed to idols, they ought to refrain from eating. If someone says that the meat was offered in a local temple, then a Christian present must not eat it for the sake of the other's conscience. If a non-Christian person sees a Christian eating meat that comes from a local temple, they might conclude the Christian acknowledges the holiness of the meat and the reality of that God. So here's a summary. Paul says to the Corinthians, Believers, if you know the food was offered to idols... Don't partake, whether the food is offered in the temple or in the open market. But if you do not know the origin of the food, feel free to eat it without asking any questions. Whew. That's some complex 
theological work. And we've had to kind of, I know I had to this week, and I'm sure you had to hearing this for, I trust, the first, maybe for the first time, how to get your head around this. So why so much hubbub, Paul? I mean, you said in chapter 8, an idol is nothing. We know an idol is nothing. There's one God. There's one Lord. It's all false worship. Why get so hung up on this? Why take a half of a chapter to explain, okay, eat it here, but don't eat it here. Okay, do this, but don't do this. Why? Because Paul is trying to model for them the kind of rigorous thought that goes into good use of Christian liberty, and they don't even have that category. They're like, I feel like doing it. I'm going to do it. And Paul says, do you realize how, false, how short you fall of loving the Lord your God with all your mind? You're not thinking how this impacts the church. You're not thinking how this impacts the, 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 the reputation of the church in the community you live in. I think Paul would tell them, and he would sit down with the Corinthians and say, I agree with you. An idol is nothing. But that's not the only issue. They think it's something. And by behaving the way you do, you do, you are hindering the progress of the gospel in Corinth. You are not behaving in a way that commends the gospel. You're, you're behaving in a way that looks like you're syncretistic. That looks like Jesus is just one idol among many. Just one God among many in Corinth. So he's more legalistic than the Corinthians, but he's not as legalistic as the Pharisees might be. Jesus is not legalistic here. He's not legalistic and he's not licentious. Sorry, not Jesus, Paul. Paul's not being legalistic. He's not saying, never eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't you know there's a demon behind it? Don't you know when you eat that meat, you ingest that demon in your body and you're going to be Satan-possessed? He knows that's not going to happen. But the perception that the, that the Corinthians have, who are outside the church, see it that way. So Paul says, don't forget the way they view things. Don't forget the way they see things and the way you try to bring the gospel to them. So that leads us to our third and final point, which is Paul's capstone of where he's trying to move the Corinthian church to. And that is a ready willingness to give up Christian liberty when the situation demands it. A ready willingness to give up Christian liberty. And I've got five points of what that means. First of all, Paul says, calibrate your conscience with the word of God so that we can strategically accommodate others for Christ's sake. Look at verse 23. All things are lawful, the Corinthians would have said. But Paul says, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, the, the Corinthians would have said, but not all things build up. See, just because it's right to do, doesn't mean it should be done. I love that Paul avoids both Pharisaic legalism and Corinthian license. Rather than navigate these issues by not going beyond what is clearly written in God's Word, he's trying to calibrate their consciences in such a way that they begin to think beyond themselves and begin to think of the impact of their behavior on someone other than themselves. See, the mature in Christ are not easily offended people with overly sensitive consciences. Rather, we desire to grow in maturity, calibrate our conscience according to God's Word, so that we can grow in maturity and discernment lest we be an unnecessary burden on the freedom of Christ of our brothers and sisters in the church. So Paul has said, ask yourself, is it helpful? Does it build up? Not just, 
is it right? Secondly, give up your rights if doing so will build up rather than harm fellow believers. Give up your rights if doing so will build up rather than harm fellow believers. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So just because we're free in our conscience to do something doesn't mean we should do it. A right is not an obligation. Our goal must always be to not just ask, is this right, but is this right right now? Don't just ask, is this right, but is this right right now? The goal is not a hypersensitivity that causes us to worry about what others think. Rather, it's a desire to be sensitive and gracious, to be genuinely aware of how others think and feel, and to be willing to limit what we do if there's a real possibility of misunderstanding or offense. We have freedom in Christ, but we use that freedom to serve and bless. Our liberty is not constrained by another person's conscience, but our love is. Thirdly, make it your aim to glorify God in your use of all your Christian liberties. Look at verses 30 and 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If God hasn't specifically prohibited something, then it is lawful to partake provided the motives are right and the relationships in which you find yourself are not negatively impacted by the practice. So you ask yourself, does the Bible allow it? If not, don't do it. If so, ask, well, does my conscience allow it? If not, don't do it. If so, ask, what's the effect on other Christians? What's the effect on non-Christians? And what is the effect on my spiritual life? If you can answer those questions, you're on the path to glorifying God with your liberties. Do you see how nuts and bolts practical this becomes? Glorifying God with your life doesn't mean walking around with an ethereal, pious glow on your face while you levitate two inches above the ground with spooky music in the background. It comes down to how you eat your french fries and drink your orange juice. It comes down to eating and drinking. It comes down to basic, real-life stuff. Fourthly, give up your rights if it will advance the gospel among unbelievers. Give up your rights if it will advance the gospel among unbelievers. Look at verse 32 and 33. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I make it try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul, just a people pleaser. He's just trying to give no offense. No, he's trying to give no offense so that he might save others. That is no offense by his Christian liberty behavior, not no offense by the gospel message. He says, give no offense by your behavior to anyone, but try to please everyone in everything you do, not seeking your own advantage, not seeking your own rights, but that of many that they may be saved. So Paul's guideline was always to do what he not was not. Paul's guideline was always to not just do what he thought best, but what was best for those around him. The opposite attitude would be doing what you want no matter how it affects others or doing nothing for fear others would be displeased or being a yes person who goes along with everything. Instead, our goal is always to ask, what course of action will best serve the purposes of Christ in my friend's life? And how can I leverage all that I have and enjoy to that end? This doesn't mean we do everything an unbeliever wants. 
It just means we do everything that doesn't serve the purposes of Christ in the unbeliever's life. Fifthly and finally, above all, imitate Christ. Above all, imitate Christ. This is what he did. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says, lay down your life for others as Christ laid down his life for you. You see me lay down my life for you, Corinthians, not taking financial support, laying my life down to plant the church at Corinth. I want you to lay your life down for others. I want you to consider laying aside the rights that you have for the sake of the gospel that you believe and the gospel that you want to see advanced in Corinth. Remember, this leads to joy. I learned as a young Christian, what is joy? Jesus, others, and you in that order. And so by Paul commending this lifestyle to them, he's not commending a joyless life. He's commending a joyful life, a life with you at the end of it. Not in the driver's seat, dictating everything, but you in the role of a servant. You always thinking, what can I do in this situation to lay down my life as Christ laid down his life for me? That the gospel might be advanced. Let's pray to that end and ask the Lord to give us that kind of grace. Father, a difficult passage for sure in terms of understanding, and it's so out of our context in terms of what we experience on a day-to-day basis. We don't live surrounded by the pagan temples of Corinth with meat being sacrificed in them to false gods. We don't live in Rome in the first century. Um, But Lord, we do live in a context in which it's becoming challenging to think through issues of Christian liberty as the church finds itself increasingly marginalized and more likely will so in the decades to come. Lord, we need your wisdom and grace to know how to navigate with courage without compromise, but also in such a way as to give up our rights and willingly surrender our liberties for the sake of the gospel. Lord, only your spirit can give us this wisdom. There's so many varied circumstances that we would encounter that need wisdom to navigate, that won't have a clear yes or no, that won't have a clear black and white, that won't have a clear verse attached to them. In those moments, may your spirit give us wisdom. But above all, give us the heart, Lord, as your people, to be disposed to serve, to be disposed to give up our rights, to be disposed to put others first, to be disposed to think what would serve the purposes of God in this moment. How can I leverage my blessings in Christ for the benefit of the gospel, both in building up the church and in reaching the lost outside of it? So, Lord, we need wisdom, and we ask you for it. And we trust that you will give it to us liberally and without fault, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.